Hello and welcome to In Line with Nature, the podcast that explains an approach to building that puts the future of our planet first. With me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I talk to experts about modern day construction, its impact on the natural world, and why the time for change is now. I'll be talking to our series of guests about new approaches to design, reimagining a built environment that's at one rather than at odds with nature. Hi, my name is Sarah Minakovicioka. I am an urbanist, strategist, curator, and writer. So what brings you to a conference on the built environment? I was particularly attracted by the focus on a habitat for Earth. I'm really interested in coming together with others who want to build and inhabit new regenerative practices. I'm asking everyone because there are so many different ways of looking at it. What does the built environment mean to you? First of all, I think that the phrase the built environment is completely clunky and someone who's a wordsmith needs to come up with a much better but still concise version of it. But essentially for me, the built environment encompasses everything that has had a human touch to it that we physically inhabit. So that can be our buildings, our public spaces and all the way through to our infrastructure. And you've been passionate about this for a a long time. It's your whole life is what you work on and we could tell that from this wonderful talk you gave earlier I I wonder if you could explain why what drives that interest and what you're hoping to see through what your work does that's such a good question Hannah I I think I've always been fascinated by cities as social ecosystems and thinking about all of the diverse interactions that shape them and that they in turn shape and it's such there's such a there you know cities are are one of humanity's oldest technologies actually you can think about places like istanbul that have been continuously inhabited um, for generations upon generations and at, at, at a time that we're faced with such uncertainty about what comes next i think it's always interesting to return to our origins and thinking about built form how we've done it in the past and how how we've done it in the past might inform how we could do it in the future. What you've just said is so central to everything, the idea of getting a balance right between the past and the future, because there's a lot of talk about uh, emulating certain things that were done in the past. But is that even possible or desirable? I think right now, one of the factors of the mess that we find ourselves in is an increasingly short-termist way of thinking about things. So whether we're looking ahead into what we must do in the future, we need to be looking at a much longer time frame. And then when we are looking for inspiration of what might inform those future actions, we also need to be looking at a much longer time frame and actually a broader geographic scale as well. So there were a lot of there was a lot of debate at the forum this year about kind of transferability from the local to the global. Um, Mm. And I think that we don't really need to see the things in too much opposition to each other. It's really just, let's take a broader view in general, whether that's geographically or temporally. We don't need to see them in opposition to one another. But you spoke really interestingly on that, saying we must be aware of this placelessness and everywhereness, which I'm so interested to hear you explain to listeners to the podcast, because I think often these ideas, these big ideas, 
they're great in, in principle, but we live in a huge world, a, a hugely different lot of places. People are here from all over the world. So how, how do you bring that to local areas? You don't necessarily want it to be an everywhere thing. You want it to be specific to a place. Correct. I'm so glad you've introduced that to our conversation. So I think I was, when I was making the observation, I was trying to observe in a very gentle way. I mean, it's something that I'm very guilty of as well, but we're in this privileged atmosphere of those of us who are very globally mobile, who may have multiple geographic points of reference. And it's not in any way to denigrate that life experience that we all bring, but it does lead us to this sort of shorthand where we assume these universally transferable norms Mm. and kind of talk about things very interchangeably um, without really touching the ground with them too often. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, as I said during our talk today, the, I think it's really important that we think about keeping the best of globalization in terms of the globalization of culture, uh, the globalization of ideas. But then when we think about solutions that touch the ground, you know, how things materialize and take form, they really do need to be rooted in bioregional localism, the specificities of place that are both environmental and cultural. And that's working with citizens, but also working with governments. And does that happen? Does that work? You know, it does. It's really hard work, though. And I found that was another observation I had, that there's so many fantastic ideas being explored. But very often the players who were referenced were either the design practitioners or the funders. And and everything that relates to policy and governance was kept a bit abstract. And I think that that is the difficult reality of realizing things on the ground in a particular locality is grappling with all of those interests that might at, at least at first seem to be in opposition and finding the points of commonality and symbiosis between those points that can make projects reality. But they off, that often means that in that process of negotiation, which does involve politics, you know, that we, you know, those of us who are working more on the design side of things have to be ready for projects to evolve considerably through that process of negotiation and consultation. And that's where the global idea, the generic global idea then becomes very locally specific. Everything involves politics. Could you give us any examples? Because again, it's just so important for people who are listening to understand what this means in practice. And you've worked in this industry, you've worked in these areas, I think across the world. So I know that there's many you could choose from, but I'll let you choose just some examples of where you work together in this way. Well, I think if you look at the example of, say, urban agriculture, in particular civic agriculture, so that means edible landscapes that are co-created by citizen groups, um, the, the context for that in a place with a very robust civil society, say, um, in the context of a UK city, might come very much through really ground up organizations, you know, neighbors might get together, get a little bit of funding um, and just all pitch in. And similarly, you know, the landscape within which that happens in a rather low density English context might be just like an empty lot. And whereas maybe in the context of a city like Singapore, where there's much stronger, uh, you could say, government leadership on, um, on these issues, for the initiative to take off, it had to come 
from government in the first instance. So it was kind of conceived of, uh, Singapore civic uh, gardening movement was conceived of at an agency level. Um, and it was implemented um, in a large part on government-owned land associated with high-rise housing estates. Um, actually, absolutely, Singapore has really fantastic um, public housing. So it's not the sort of image one might have coming from a European context. It's, I mean, re really, really world-class. But, but uh, you know, and then thinking about the negotiation of finding that space in a higher-density land-scarce context um, might involve much more formal discussion than say just finding finding a derelict lot around the back of the high street or something that you can take over in a more guerrilla way. So having said now to go back on the idea that everything is very place specific are there any places examples projects you've worked on that really show how it should be done and could be done and that's that's transferable? Ooh, I mean so many I think there um one great example that I've, we've really seen scale across many different, um, many different urban contexts is the idea of co-creative city labs. So bringing together um, citizens with designers, with hackers, to try to think about how government, um, local government solutions might be co-created, reimagined, piloted. And you can see those sorts of urban labs you know, anywhere from Sao Paulo to Helsinki, they have different degrees, you know, they have different degrees of integration or separation from formal city government. But that is, I think that is a model that has really been transferable and localizable um, around the world with, with great positive benefits. This is another quite general question. I try to keep away from it because we've both worked out that it's something that happens all too easily and we want to move away. But I asked you why you got into it, but if you had a sort of vision of where you want to see your projects, a general vision of what the future looks like, what would that be? You talked about the when earlier, but how long are we looking to get to a place where things are as you would imagine they should be in terms of the built environment? Well, we're working with a bit of an external deadline now. I mean, we know that we have at best 10 years to radically transform almost everything that we do. Uh, but I think when I think when you asked me to think about where I would like to see things go, it would be for us to embrace that with radical positivity, to think mm. not, oh my God, we have to transform everything, that's terrifying, that's upsetting, that's apocalyptic, but rather to think, you know what, there's so many bits of our current system that aren't serving the majority of people. Well, you know, we have, we have an epidemic of you know, a mental health crisis in many places in, in the industrialized world, we have, you know, we have, whether industrialized or non-industrialized, you know, we have nutritional crises at both ends of the spectrum, you know, like too little too nutrition, too much empty, too many empty calories at the other side of things. So many things about humans' relationships with each other and with the world that we inhabit are so out of balance. Like, yes, please, let's transform it. It could be so much better for so many more people. It's this amazing opportunity, actually. Um, and you can either, so, you know, we could either choose to bury our heads in the sand and just watch it all slow, you know, ever rapidly fall to pieces or, you know, get stuck in with two hands. And that's one of the key points that Michael Pollan and I emphasize in our book, uh, Flourish, Design Paradigms for Our Planetary Emergency, is this idea of possibilism um, really imagining what, with the data that we know, what 
possible futures we could be part of? And then what role might we as individuals or the organizations we're involved with or the networks that we're involved with, you know, TKF has a very strong network, right? Growing ever stronger at five years in. How can those networks be mobilized to maximize our agency in birthing that exciting transformative change? Well, let's ask you that. How do you think that it can be mobilized because again it's so easy to sit in this beautiful place and discuss the problems and the solutions the challenges the most extraordinary voices in these rooms you know we've been so amazed and and it's just brilliant to hear but how do you go away having had these conversations done this networking come together as all these very disparate different voices and actually make that into tangible change It's a real challenge, and it's something that I think we need to hold ourselves accountable about, especially after, I mean, knowing what we know now about the timescale, every bit of carbon that we spend really needs to have an ROI in terms of impact. And all of us will have spent quite a lot of carbon um, coming here. And what excites me, I suppose, is the idea that the way, to, as I understand it, the way the forum is structured is that it, the theme extends across two years. And I would strongly encourage the leadership to set us some homework. I mean, we've had this incredible time together. We found common ground generally. There's been a high level framing of the issues, but now it really does need to think, we do need to think more proactively about how our collective agency, as those of us who've had the privilege of being invited here, can be brought into play for action. So I think some sort of continuation activity in that time while the next year's forum is being planned, and thinking about what homework, (laughs) what nice, what nice regenerative homework uh, the leadership could give us and really asking that everyone who, if they want to be invited back mm. next year, I think everyone should have to come with a bit of an action plan. Action plans. Yeah. What about people listening who aren't here, who aren't even involved as experts in the field of whatever it might be, architecture, and their world is not about the built environment, but of course they live in their environment. Do you have any actionable things for them because you've you've spoken a lot about what individuals can do and that's such an important part of it but we listen to this us mere mortals and we think what can I do in my day-to-day life to make some sort of a difference a movement what would what could that be so you know when we were kind of jokingly saying that the built environment is everything um that means that everyone has a stake in its future I mean the built environment is the building that you live in, it's the street that you walk down, it's the hospital that you seek treatment in, it's the church that you worship in if you worship, it's if you have children, it's the school that they go to, it's how they get to school, um, it's where your food comes from. I mean, it, it can expand <laughs> in a kind of amorphous way, but actually, you know, just all of those examples provide just a tiny glimpse of the many points of entry to action. So um, one could get involved in looking at the energy efficiency of one's building, if, you know, if it's a multi-tenanted building as it might be in, you know, in many European capitals, or um, one could look at um, micro afforestation, you know, people, you, there are many groups now who are, adopt, who are like adopting and generating in, urban microforests um, in, in, in lots uh, that they, in the, nearby their neighborhoods. But I think it, more than anything, it's thinking about 
more than just the role of the individual as a consumer that we've so we've been taught um, taught to think about our agency as limited to our consumer choices. Actually, we have so many more multifaceted ways um, in which we are present citizens in our communities. We are students at schools or alumni of schools. We are residents of neighborhoods. Um, we are members of uh, congregations of worship and on and on and on. And those are all incredibly powerful networks that we already have um, that we can use without having to spend too much more time in the politics of building common ground to move towards collective action. I would like to ask you something else that you earlier said in your talk, something that I found really interesting, don't other the indigenous. Mm -hmm. And I meant to ask you if you could just elaborate on, on that because it's so important. Sure, happy to. So a very positive trend and one which I heard a lot of my peers throughout the forum referencing and we had the wonderful Julia Watson talking about her work with low tech is a real, a, a new refound and long overdue appreciation for indigenous um, technologies, indigenous kind of worldviews. And that's all incredibly valid. But I think we, at the same time that we seek to, um, you know, provide resource to and extend voice to and you know all, all of all of the ways in which indigenous communities perhaps as um, slightly in a slightly more delimited definition um, should fully be you know everything that they have to share or if they care to share it with those of us who've been fully industrialized should be absolutely appreciated but at the same time, or and, it's not a but, it's an and at the same time, I think we can all be inspired to understand that at some point, all of our ancestors in wherever they may have evolved, that we wouldn't be here now if they hadn't found a way to survive <laughs> and coexist with the very, very local conditions of the place and which places within which they found themselves. And that means that we have that extended cultural history of situating ourselves in place and that there are so many traditions that if we work with a whole host of you know anthropologists mm. historians mm. archaeologists that in every place where we might find ourselves now there are so many places where we can more thoroughly embed in that historic knowledge without necessarily just treating it as something out there that someone else does, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. Fascinating. And I'm going to let you go to have a drink now. But thank you so much. Brilliant to hear all of that. And I, I could ask you millions more questions, but I'm not going to. Thank you, Hannah. You've been listening to In Line With Nature, brought to you by the Closters Forum, hosted by me, Hannah McInnes, produced by Claire Heaton, and supported by the wonderful team at the Closters Forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, or any questions you might have about the episode. Just send your email to podcast at theclostersforum.com and make sure to tune in for our next instalment. <laughs>